Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome debut writer Brian O'Hare, graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and former U.S. Marine Corps officer. Surrender, a collection of interconnected short stories, has already won the Syracuse University Press's 2021 Veterans Writing Award, chosen by National Book Award winner and former guest on this show, Phil Ply. Brian's work has appeared in War, Literature and the Arts, Santa Fe Writers Project, Hobart, and elsewhere. Surrender is out and available now. It's published by Syracuse University Press, and it's going to give us a lot to talk about. Before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we're now offering great perks on Patreon. We uh, started the page to keep in better touch with you, get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks every week. You can see the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out if the show has boosted your writing in some way or you've gotten some useful advice. This is an easy way to reach out to us and we appreciate it. On with the show. Brian, welcome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, as we were talking about before, and if people are regular listeners of the show, they know I have a huge love of both the short story form and specifically war stories. So it's it's no surprise this book found its way to my desk, and I'm I'm so glad it did. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. We have the little luxury of time this morning, so I thought maybe we could start at the beginning with your writing, because okay. you, know, you obviously had a significant career in the military, but I was just wondering if writing was sort of there all along or if it came about, you know, kind of post-war. Yeah, that's a great question. And first of all, you know, it's not, I didn't exactly have a significant career. I mean, maybe time-wise, you know, I spent almost six years in the Marine Corps and four years before that at the Naval Academy, but eh, you know, significance, who knows? Uh, certainly significant in my life. It was a transformative experience, but probably not for the reasons that the Naval Academy or the Marine Corps had initially intended. I mean, just this provides, I think, sort of a good foundation for the, you know, for this question. I really felt that, you know, my Marines in particular, the guys that I was in charge with, really transformed my life and the way that I look at the world. And that always stuck with me. I, you know, I come from primarily a, a, at the time, mostly middle class, now upper middle class, upper class white suburb of Pittsburgh, a very conservative place. You know, they're consistently ranked as, you know, having, you know, the best public school in Pennsylvania and everybody goes to college. Really not that many people go into the Marine Corps, especially not enlisting into the Marine Corps. In some ways, like when I was growing up, if you enlisted uh, into the military, it was almost as if you know you were going to prison or something. So having that experience with my Marines it really changed me. It was such a transformative experience. And yeah, it's informed my writing so much. So to answer your question, you know, I wasn't writing physically during that time, but I'd always sort of perceived all the situations that I was in, the people that I met, almost, you know, from a writer's perspective, certainly as an outsider's perspective. And I was always sort of subconsciously, I think, commenting on, you know, people, situations, that sort of thing. You know, the idea to go to the Naval Academy and, you know, spend, you know, almost six years in the Marine Corps, I always say, 
you know, it's a, a result of getting some bad career advice, primarily from my larger than life father, who was a Marine pilot in Vietnam. You know, if you had asked me, if he had asked me or anybody had asked me at, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old, what do you see yourself doing when you're 56? I would have said, you know, I see myself being a writer, a storyteller. And so, you know, instead I went to you know, this, you know, meat grinder engineering school and, you know, learned naval architecture, weapon systems engineering, electrical engineering, physics, calculus, differential equations, and it was mind numbing. So I've, I've always been an artist who's been sort of in this environment that I didn't quite fit in with. I started out as an actor, you know, to, again, a very long winded way of answering your question, came to Los Angeles. That's a really tough way to make a living. You know, and I would say probably about the 2000th, you know, Doritos commercial audition when I'd had my daughter and I was bringing her on auditions. I just I, I couldn't just couldn't do it anymore. It was not sustainable. So I started producing documentary films and I've always had this idea in my head that I would I could write, too. And finally, about seven years ago, I just sat down and I just started writing in the garage and, you know, just kept at it and took all these experiences that I'd had, these people that I'd met, and these perspectives that I'd had on things. And I used them as seeds that I planted, so to speak. And from that grew this collection of uh, stories known as Surrender. Well, yeah, the acting sort of makes sense to me, the acting and the movie making, because the dialogue, first of all, the stories are really very cinematic. I mean, you really can can see them very clearly and the characters are so blown up into obviously authentic, real people, but also the dialogue, the dialogue I thought read so authentically. Dialogue's tough for me. And I kind of forced myself to read plays or movie scripts to because, you know, it's all dialogue and right. um, that really comes through. Tell me a little bit about settling on the short story form. Well, I mean, there there was no great bolt of light that, you know, short stories would be this first successful endeavor. I mean, other than loving, you know, short story writers, Chekhov, Carver, certainly George Saunders. You know, for me, it was a practical thing. I felt that, you know, if I couldn't write a 15-page story effectively, I sure couldn't write, you know, a 250-page or a 300-page novel. And so I just felt I just concentrated on telling a story within 10 to 15 pages. And then I also looked at it as if it was almost backstory for a novel idea that I had. And I figured that, you know, I could, I could almost write these biographical situations that these characters would eventually, um, you know, be in this novel about. And then after a while, you know, you do this for five, six years and, you know, the, the thing starts to take a life of its own in a way. What started out as, a, again, a very practical thing created this very rich world that I very much enjoyed going into and trying to make sense of. So mm -hmm. it just started out of practicality, really. It's interesting to me when I think of, you know, obviously Tim O'Brien wrote novels, a couple of them, and Phil Cly obviously wrote a novel, but they're short stories. There's something about war and short stories that give it that kind of staccato gut punch they, they feel like you know like little mini battles or gunfights or something <laughs> I don't know why I feel like this but I feel like the content really lends itself to the form I don't know if you felt that way no that's interesting and I've never really thought about that until you just brought it up but it makes sense I think because you know my you know incredibly limited experience with combat I mean we're talking like minutes in that whole entire experience 
you know, it's more absurd than anything. And it's more like fragments. The whole experience is fragmentary. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, at least me, maybe I'm not brilliant enough, but I had a hard time seeing that experience, especially while I was in it. And even upon reflection as being a whole, like, what did it mean? And it was, you know, related to these individual experiences and experiences that weren't necessarily related to, you know, oh, somebody was that did somebody fire a rocket at us? Or, you know, what was that? It was, again, for me, it was more this, the absurdity of it, or the industrial accident aspect of it that interested me. And maybe that is, like you said, maybe the, the, the genre, or whatever you want to call it is better related to these flashes of realization or clarity, as you put it. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, And as you're saying that, it makes me think, you know, as I was reading this collection and and I'll let you introduce it a little bit more thoroughly, but kind of the standout stories to me were the ones before that took place before war. So it's kind of divided into these, you know, three loose sections that aren't called out, but it, it kind of breaks down that it's pre-war, it's war, and it's post-war. Yeah. And um, the interest, the really interesting stories, sort of larger than life in my head, are the ones that are pre and post, and especially those post-war stories where you know the narrator is looking back and trying to make sense of it all. So everything that you said about your experience there really kind of tracks to to how those stories came to feel. And maybe this is a good opportunity for you to introduce the collection a little bit more. They're interconnected, so we kind of track the, the, you know, the same characters throughout the stories at different times of their lives, but take us into that world a little bit deeper. I think in a lot of ways, you know, this, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I had this larger than life Marine pilot father, you know, this guy who just oozed mid-century New York Irish swagger. I mean, the guy was like a cartoon character come to life and to grow up with a guy like that was, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people were kind of jealous that I had a dad like that you know, if I may use, you know, a bit of salty language, there's a yeah. friend of mine that I grew up with. He said, you know, your dad was the shit and everybody knew it. And <laughs> Great. that was, that was, in, I mean, that's a very, very, very accurate description of my father. He took up a lot of space and he kind of saw me in a way, and I guess as all parents do, I mean, I certainly do with my kids, almost like his creation, you know, his, his improved creation his protege and to you know be better than he was but it had to be in this very narrow definition of what a you know again a mid-century new york irish marine pilot would see for his son and it certainly was not a career as a writer and as a documentary film producer you know living on the margins so to speak in los angeles that i think that idea terrified him so, you know, a lot of what my story collection is about is, is de- demythologizing that and demythologizing a certain kind of American manhood, I think. Um, you know, the team captain, the Naval Academy midshipman, the Marine, you know, the father. This is, you know, these are these very sort of mainstream, they're almost tropes in a way, you know, these tropes of sort of like wasp, upper middle class America. I mean, I'm not a wasp, but... You know, I certainly grew up in a waspy township when, you know, even when all the, the people who were not wasps were pretending at being wasps. 
And, you know, that's a component of the book as well. But so anyway, for me, it's, it's demythologizing these roles in is my father, you know, my father raised me to be the football team captain. And I was, I was, you know, all conference center, you know, our team was nationally ranked USA Today top 25. I think in the, the 30 games that I played uh, at my high school, we lost two, my first game and my last game. Wow. And, you know, I, and I know too that everybody, you know, all cultures in America love high school football, but Western Pennsylvania is a little different. I mean, you know, you've got those movies from the 80s, the Tom Cruise, you know, all the right moves, that sort of thing. Uh, so even in Hollywood kind of mythologized this world that I specifically occupied. So it was, you know, it's demythologizing that. What did that mean? What did it mean to the people around me? Uh, the people that weren't, you know, in the spotlight, shall we say, you know, the, the guy that was the third string guy on the team, the guy that was, you know, you know, I've, I've got a story that specifically, you know, uh, addresses that. What did it mean to the drum major? who's terrific, you know, but nobody cares because he's a band, a quote band geek. And so, you know, there's that. And then of course, you know, my father went to NYU, which sounds amazing, early sixties, NYU with Scorsese and everybody. And, but, you know, my father always wanted to go to the Naval Academy. So he sold the Naval Academy hard. And to him, what would you major in? What are you going to do with it? Eh, it didn't matter. Nobody asked, like I said, what do you see yourself doing at age 56? So I went to the Naval Academy and that's a pretty unforgiving place for a lot of reasons. And, you know, through sheer tenacity and just stu absolute stubbornness, I made it through there and then went on to the Marine Corps and became a Marine officer. And that was like the finishing school for that. And by the time I was, you know, been through the Persian Gulf War and 27, 28 years old, I couldn't do it anymore. I had to, you know, time to start living my own life. And as a result, my father stopped talking to me. It was crazy. Here's this guy that, you know, raised me to be his protege. And the moment that I made another decision, a decision for myself, that he just stopped talking to me. So for me, these stories are, are an attempt to reconcile all of that, to demythologize uh, not only my father, but these institutions, whether it's, you know, the Marine Corps, the Navy, these tribes, these very masculine tribes and the people that are in it. And, you know, what does that mean? And I have to say that, you know, the, where we are as a country and as a world now, you know, from 2016 till now, I mean, it's been going on a long time. It's not just 2016, but I think, you know, we went into warp speed in 2016 in sort of nailing, you know, the coffin shut on the patriarchy. And these stories really, in a way, all deal with that patriarchy for better or for worse. And it was my way of, you know, adding my own nail to that. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't think it's a bad thing that the patriarchy is going away at all. Um, I think it's a good thing. So, I mean, that's kind of a highfalutin way of me talking about this exorcism, as I like to call it, that I did with this uh, collection of stories. Well, to your last point, that was going to be one of my observations is that it's always interesting for me to think about, you know, the outside world that books come into and what it means to be a man and particularly a white man and particularly, you know, a white man of a certain age is just completely shape-shifting. And that 
adds a layer of something that I think, you know, Tim O'Brien didn't have to deal with when the things they carried came out in 1990 or, you know, his other book in 1978 or even Phil Clay's redeployment in 2015. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just such a different world. And so to commentate on that, which which these stories really do and to to grapple with how you bring men up and how you what it is to be a man it's funny i was just reading jamaica kincaid's girl it's just like a one page one sentence flash fiction piece on this mother instructing her daughter on you know how to it written in second person on you know essentially how to be a girl how to be a woman yeah and i th- i was thinking about that as i was reading this that this is this is sort of that in short story form of how to be a man. I don't know if you felt as you were writing the stories or what, what actually I should ask what period of time these stories were written over. It's a little hazy right now, but I'm going to say basically from 2015, 2016 till like present day. So kind of, you know, sort of in that, to that, you know, the zeitgeist kind of thing of what was floating around like a you know an oil a burning oil well cloud in our culture in 2015 2016 during that period oh and to to your point about the jamaica kincaid story i mean i have a son i have a daughter thank god i mean i i love love daughters my daughter's wonderful and i have a son who's well he's wonderful too he's 14 and i have this you know it's a huge responsibility to raise a son in particular i think and I think subconsciously that I was writing these stories in a way in, as, you know, that Jamaica Kincaid, you know, not equating the two of us by any means, you know, it was a, it's a, it's a book, it's an instructional book for my son and he's a wonderful human being and he's so much better of a human being than I ever was at age 14. It's sort of shocking. So he's, hopefully he's not going to have to go through all this stuff that I did, but he has a manual anyway from his dad. Was there ever, because in, in the fictive form, I mean, at some point you have to take that leap away from what is you to what is Francis is, is one of the main characters in here. And I was wondering if that was difficult, like how you breathed life into him separate and apart from who you were and the ways in which he may have surprised you in his choices that maybe weren't your choices. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a great craft question too, I think, you know, because we're always advised to write what you know. You know, it's the oldest advice in the world. And I think it's good advice. I would say for me, though, I mean, I, I find people to be totally fascinating. And I sort of collect, you know, bits and pieces of people like speech or decisions that they made or perspectives, POVs or a voice even. I mean, sort of like a philosophy. And, you know, I, I keep a little book and I just put little observations down. And I found that, you know, as the more that I wrote, it was easier to create this hybrid Francis, because I mean, obviously at his base is me, he has my DNA, but he's a lot of other people too. I mean, people that are like opposite of him in a way. And, you know, what are we all, but, you know, a collection of of contradictions and a collection of opposites. But, you know, it's my version, I think, of if you wear a mask, you can tell the truth. I mean, that's another ancient Mm -hmm. chestnut. And I think, you know, the more that I was able to incorporate other personality traits that weren't identifiably mine, that I could tell the truth more. And I mean, then there's just the practical, like a plausible deniability thing. Like, well, that's not me. You know, I know Francis 
seems like he is me, but it's, it's not me. And these other people, you know, are not you. So it gives you a lot of freedom, I think. But I think it, it just comes with training the whatever muscle in your brain of, you know, like you said, observing people and bits of conversation or again, just these, I was, okay. So for me, a lot of what makes a good short story is the, but yeah, a B-U-T. And I know other people probably have different ways of saying it. And in acting, I had this amazing teacher. Actually, a lot of what I learned in my acting class apply directly to what I do as a, a, as a writer, as a short story writer and a writer in general. You know, she, she taught us, we had this amazing teacher, Susan Peretz. Who, she's been dead now for almost 20 years, unfortunately. She was a legend. She's this very blue collar, Brooklyn Jewish uh, actor studio, like, let's roll our sleeves up. Let's get dirty. Let's do the work. She was in Dog Day Afternoon. She played uh, Al Pacino's wife, Sonny's wife. She was uh-huh. fabulous in that movie. And I remember, this is an aside, my father taking my family to see that movie in 1975 or whenever it was, and walking out of the theater at South Hills Village, and it was like February, and it was cold. And the only character my father remembered was my acting teacher. I remember him talking about her and because she, she created such an indelible character. Anyway, it took me like 30 years to figure out it was her. But <laughs> she, would, she would always say, and this applies back to the butt, is that, you know, you would do a scene for her. And she would always say people would make sort of not very good choices or not strong choices. And she would always say, what is the bloodiest choice that you can make dramatically? I find that to be very helpful as a writer, you know, mm-hmm. rather than these sort of like milk toasty, like, well, you know, I, li- I like him. He's nice. And it's like, no, like, what is it? What is the bloodiest choice that you can make? And the thing that relates to the butt, as I put it, Susan would always say about regarding the scene, like, why are we doing this scene today? Why did the playwright or the, you know, the screenwriter write this scene? She would always say it's the Passover thing. Why is this day different from all others? And that's the but. And, you know, applying that, the thing that people say on Passover to our writing, that I think can make for, you know, dynamic stories about like, well, why do we care about this? It's not just, you know, every day I get up and I make myself some avocado toast and coffee and I try to figure out how to get off square one. Everybody does that. But it's the, why is this day different from all others? Am I going to get a divorce today? A car accident, whatever. So for me, it's it's the but is the thing that I'm always looking for in life. I see lots of examples out there um, and I'll just sort of jot them down and they become the seed for a, a story. That's at least, that's my process. And the interesting thing about what you're saying and and the way you execute that in these stories is that... It doesn't have to be over the top. I mean, when you say we have a collection of war stories here, that conjures images of explosions and gunshots and all of that. And the the most highly impactful moments in a lot of these stories are just these emotional, yeah. <laughs> emotional explosions rather than physical explosions. I mean, there's a story towards the end where some young kids must have said something to Francis's daughter and he follows them down the street. Or there's a moment at the very beginning where the football coach has them laying, you know, face down on the gymnasium floors and picturing it. And it's those more than <laughs> more than the war scenes. And I, I don't know if you found that too, that you can make something so 
powerful and make the reader hold their breath out of relatively what seem like physically minor, but are very emotionally major scenes. Well, thank you. And I mean, but that's, I mean, again, many people far wiser than me, you know, maybe John Lennon was one, you know, that life is what happens when you're making other plans type thing. Yeah. And I think that's a way of, you know, another way of saying that it's just life is just this collection of small moments. And yet within these small moments or these, you know, we can extrapolate the meaning of life essentially from it. And everybody too is fighting a private battle, a private war every single second of every day. And whether it's the football coach who's sad or heartbroken because his players don't love him and his players, you know, aren't going to come back and see him. And he's worried, you know, it's his battle with being loved in the need to be worshipped again as this mythological character that he sees himself as. I mean, this guy is, you know, the winningest coach in the history of Western Pennsylvania. And, you know, again, he's in this place where people worship that guy. That guy is a kind of deity and he doesn't understand why he's not more beloved. And this is constantly in his mind. And he's got these kids and other adults who continually thwart that and battle him all the time. And he, he reacts by making, you know, kids do, as he calls it, the Chinese thinking drill on the gym floor, you know, on their elbows and toes. And that's what he does in life. So it's like a little small war. And, you know, the same thing in the Marine Corps stuff too. Little things happen. A, a Lance Corporal steals your mail and you've been taught, you've got this idea. Again, another great Susan Peretz, my acting teacher thing. She would always say, you can't act an idea. And that means, you know, like if you're doing a scene and you're supposed to be drunk, you can't, you don't, you can't have an idea, quote, you know, of being drunk. You have to feel it. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can't write an idea either. And it has to be rooted in, you know, in the organic and something truthful. Again, one of the great things of like, what is acting? It's behaving truthfully in imaginary circumstances. I mean, what else? What is writing? What is fiction writing besides that, too? It's writing truthfully in imaginary circumstances. So, you know, again, there's all these little wars being fought. You know, the movie and the book, The Thin Red Line, come up. And I think especially well dramatized in the movies, the idea of all these personal wars being fought. Here they are on Guadalcanal, yet everybody's dealing with their own demons uh, that they're fighting, you know, in addition to the enemy. So, yes, these, quote, war stories are often not. And they often involve, you know, a very central thing of who we are and especially who we are as men and these ideas that get planted into our heads by our tribes, you know, our families, you know, are again, for men specifically, you know, their fathers, coaches, the Marine Corps, the military, whatever. So it's living up to these ideas or this mythology of how you're supposed to be in dealing with the reality of it. And that that's a war right there. So you mentioned two stories in here specifically, a communist plot and the male thief. And those might be good ones for us to just tear into and rip apart and talk about original kernels of ideas and sure. you know how you grappled with revision process and titling and all those writerly issues. 
maybe we start with a communist plot. I mean, to your point about your teacher's advice of not being able to feel an idea or enact an idea, I think a lot of that for writers is staying in a scene. And, you know, I think, yeah. I think new writers are very apt to tell you all about the scene rather than staying in the scene. So did the communist plot, did you stay in scene or did you come around to, you know, I have this idea and I have to find my way into a scene? I think George Saunders touched on this in your previous episode. And again, everybody's got a different way of talking about things. And something that I heard, I did not make this up or come up with it, is that I think as writers, we're like two kinds of writers, basically. There are architects and there are gardeners. You know, an architect is a writer who thinks, well, I'm going to build the Empire State Building. I have this idea for this, you know, this specific building I want to build. And then they sit down and they build it. Uh, I'm definitely not an architect. I'm very much a gardener. I mean, I've got so many seeds and little pieces of whatever stuff floating around in my head waiting to sprout. And occasionally that I will take two seeds, four seeds, 10 seeds, and I plant them in the ground and I tend them a little bit. And, you know, maybe something comes up, some die. And then, you know, after a while you snip off a little of this, you weed around it. And then, you know, you have like, you know, a palm tree. And, you know, you thought maybe it was going to look like a rose bush or, you know, daisies or pineapples or something. And you realize then at the end, it's like, okay, so it's a palm tree and you don't fight that, I don't think. And, you know, you let, you know, I hesitate to use the word logic, but, you know, I think you kind of go with your gut and, you know, your emotions in a way um, of storytelling and what seems truthful and you let that guide you. And if it's, again, if it's a palm tree, you let it be a palm tree. So, you know, I think that the idea for a communist plot in general, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a big, there's a, there was like a, a myth, and I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody actually did that at our high school. I could find no photographic proof of it. Nobody seemed to know about it, but I like the idea of kids who are not on the football team, but who had been, you know, the object of harassment by this autocratic uh, football coach, again, this, you know, this minor deity of Western Pennsylvania, them getting back at them, it, these kids getting back to the coach and this father uh, of the one of the kids by, by burning Devo, the name of the band into an AstroTurf field before a big football game. You know, it seemed it, one of the books that I really love is uh, Ben Fountain's Billy Lynn's uh, Long Halftime Walk. That's an incredible book for so many reasons. And the fact that it takes place at the Cowboys Redskins Thanksgiving Day football game, it couldn't be more American and more of this mythological American manhood component that you know I'm talking about and that I'm fascinated with. So I guess in a way, you know, subconsciously or on a gut level, the idea of this temple in a way, this arena. I think one of the characters even refers to it like the Colosseum is, you know, where gladiators fight and we like to perceive ourselves as gladiators. It taking place, this act of desecration taking place in this, what a lot of people consider to be very holy in a way was perfect. My own version of the Ben Fountain, you know, Billy Lynn, Texas Stadium, the Dallas Cowboys Stadium idea. When the first seed was planted, so when the, when the first draft was done, did it bear pretty good relation to how it ultimately turned out? Or was this rewritten so many times that it kind of became unrecognizable by the finished product? 
Yeah, it it did become unrecognizable. And I don't think that's a bad thing either. And I think, again, we writers, and especially beginning writers out there, I think you just have to sort of inure yourself to that feeling. Because I think a lot of us who are sort of goal-oriented or whatever, accomplishment-oriented, something turning out not the way that you expect it to, we perceive that as failure, I think. And I mean, it's, it's the furthest thing from that. And I think it's, again, part of the challenge of this process of writing and becoming an effective writer is becoming friends with these things. You know, it's like becoming friends with the word no, which is absolutely essential. You know, we have, we as writers have to become friends with this idea that we, you know, again, there's that word again, idea. We have this idea in our head and we put it down on paper and then we have a, you know, a trusted confidant or a, you know, an advisor or a teacher or somebody. And they're like, yeah, this isn't working. And, you know, and rather than jumping off your roof or something like that, you know, like maybe put it aside and let it gestate a little bit and then looking at it with fresh eyes. And I think stuff appears then like, ooh. I have no idea what I was thinking there, but it obviously does not work. And being that good gardener that, you know, I am, I snip that away and you shape it and you just sort of let it take you along. So again, to specifically answer your question, like a communist plot was nothing more than a, like a quote, like a revenge story. And I have this, I have a, you know, basically my guru of writing is a Los Angeles legend. And I have, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention him, Jim Caruso. Yeah. Uh, who taught the 30, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yeah, I took his, yeah, I was, took his class for a while back in, I don't know, around 2001 or two. Yeah. So we, so we both have that in common. We are 30 B Santa Monica, Santa Monica college. Was it? Yeah. Was it? Yep. yep. Every, and wow. I live in South Orange County, so it was not an easy commute. <laughs> uh, but you know what, but it was absolutely totally worth it. Oh, yeah. I live in Northeast Los Angeles. And so I would drive, you know, Wednesday afternoon down the 110 and 10 to get to Santa Monica. And it was pure hell, but every it was bliss when I got there. Yeah. Um, I can't say enough terrific things about Jim in that class, 30, the 30B writing workshop. It really transformed my writing in a lot of ways. So basically, you know, you get Jim Caruso's feedback and he's like, Eh, you know, it's a, it's a revenge story. Like, who cares? Uh, so it's so again, to a very long-winded way of saying that. Yes, it went through many revisions uh, before it acquired some meaning. You know, I would hope, but it started out as an idea, and through many revisions, became something else. That's interesting. So say more a little about that. Is that a matter of digging? I assume that's a matter of digging into character and motivation, or is it a matter of digging into scenes? As you're sculpting the rose bush and realizing it's a palm tree, that's character work, that's scene work, or that's... Again, I think to give credit to the other great guru of my storytelling life, Susan Peretz, my acting teacher, for me, it always comes back to the character and motivation. And, you know, is you know, again, is this, what is this character's motivation? What does this character want? What is the truthful, you know, what is organic about what this character is doing? What, and I think that is, again, everybody's got their own process and we come at this from so many different experiences. But for me, that's very helpful in getting things from being an idea to something that, you know, again, has something to say, so to speak. So, yeah, I think for me, it's character work. And again, asking what do they really want? What is this really about? 
And I think in that you realize, oh, well, it's, you know, it's a story about, you know, again, uh, you know, wanting a father's love or something like that. You know, I, I think even if we look at the entire collection as a whole, Surrender, I mean, that took me, I don't know, three years to even figure that out, like what the collection was about. And then that even really then helped guide my writing, because then sitting down with an idea, I knew the territory, you know, what does it mean to be a man? so to speak, in demythologizing that, it gave me sort of parameters of where to explore. But like I said, it took several years to even figure that out. And that came from a lot of trial and error and me going back to basics. Again, this character work from, you know, acting class. So yeah, the, so so the scenes, mm, I think those serve the characters. And then the, you know, the sentence structure and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm always sort of editing as we go, because it helps me sort of get a clear idea of what I'm doing. But to me, that's almost like polishing work, you know, the length of sentences, length of paragraphs, you know, there's a kind of a rhythm uh, that I think that these things form. And the rhythm, of course, has to support, again, this, you know, this theme, I almost said idea. Your use of the word about, I think, is so useful. It's That's been a useful thing to me to every time you finish, you know, a draft of something, you're like, okay, what I know what I know what happens, but what is this really about? And if you keep digging through that hole of what is this about, you really get you dig down to something truer, I think, than than whatever it starts as. And yeah, it's so important. It's so important. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I think, too, it, here, again, another great Susan Peretz acting class thing. People, when they would act, again, this has direct application to being a writer. People would do these scenes and they would put so much onto a character or their portrayal of a character during this scene work. And this, you know, whoever the actor was, is like the most fascinating human being in the world. And yet they don't feel like it's enough. And they keep adding like, well, you know, the, I give the character a limp and, you know, he's an alcoholic and, you know, just all this stuff that was extraneous. But our teacher, again, Susan, would say, you are enough. And I think this, again, applies directly to writing as well, that we don't have, like, again, it, this thing that you're talking about, we keep digging through, is really sort of like a, an attempt at, you know, simplicity in a way of stripping away this artifice, the crutches, you know, the the, you know, the alcoholism, whatever you want to call it, these character traits in getting to something that is very you know, simple and specific, as Susan would always say, regarding choices. And that is something that drives me all the time. If it's got too many, you know, flashing lights and mirrors and stuff, it's probably wrong. So simple and specific, and you are enough. I mean, again, all of us as human beings, like regardless of how you grew up, where you grew up, Wow, what a what a miracle! What an absolutely miraculous creation we all are with you know these experiences, and if you can just convey even you know a just a, a dust mote of that, that's some profound stuff. We'll be right back with more from Brian O'Hare and the short story collection Surrender in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. 
Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show and you have learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, so you can visit us at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month, we will return your favor by giving you some weekly writing tips and tricks. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Brian O'Hare and the book Surrender. Your titles are so great. I mean, most of the titles come from something in the story, but I always find that a title is a little bit of that arrow to help me, you know, point in the right direction of where I'm trying yeah. to go. At what point in the story, so this is called a communist plot, and it's it's obviously taken, you know, plucked out of a, a quote that comes fairly early in the story, but how early did the title of that come to you? And did that help you at all in, in shaping the aboutness of it? Yeah, it's a great question, too. I mean, I guess that question could be answered two ways. One, how early did that phrase come into my life? Man, I've been hearing that well, not a lot lately, but I mean, in the late 70s and early 80s, again, growing up where I did and playing the sport, you know, football that I did, I heard that constantly. You know, when soccer was just getting to be big in America and at my school, kids, you know, lots of kids played soccer. My father would always say that, I guess, jokingly, I don't know, he's gone now, I can't ask, but he would call it a communist plot to destroy the youth of America. So it's always been in my head. So it's been in my head for 40 something years. And I guess that was a pretty profound seed that's been in there for a long time. And so I guess the idea for that story is kind of twofold. I think that well, I, either earlier, okay, so earlier title for that was soccer fags, if you'll excuse my usage of that word, because that's another phrase that people would use in my township, in my high school, to describe guys who played soccer as if they were not, you know, as if their sexuality was in question because they didn't play football. And I mean, it's absurd now. Again, it's it's unthinkable. It's embarrassing. My kids can't believe that I grew up in, you know, in such a time and a place, you know, the barbarism of it. So and we so, thought we were enlightened in those days. <laughs> isn't it crazy? I know that. And we in in a way we were. Right. Um, we were right. Right. Because yeah, it's that's a whole we need a whole hour for that. So I you know, again, it's been, you know, again, back to this idea of sort of like demythologizing. Those two phrases, you know, are just were like really huge in this whole idea of sort of like, again, addressing this kind of like idea of, you know, the football captain. And then after, you know, I used a couple, you know, I've done a couple really unsuccessful drafts as, you know, uh, soccer fag was the title. Um, the father then in you know, the father of the protagonist of things said the communist plot. And I was like, oh, actually, it's more. It's more of a nuanced title, I think, in a way, too. And it sort of poses a question like, well, what is that? What is this plot? And I think, again, too, it, it sort of relates, you know, this in this time of, you know, pervasive conspiracy theories in this term of communism or socialists and communists that people like to throw around. And, you know, it kind of hinted at that as well. And it gave it a little bit more of a timeless quality or at least I like to tell myself that as opposed to the other title, which seemed to date it a little more and lock it into a specific time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these titles, obviously, and that's sort of the job of short story titles is to work on a couple of different levels. But yeah, you come to it automatically with a question. 
Well, I mean, even in two, and maybe this is a question at a certain point too, but I mean, you know, the title of the book is called Surrender. And I realized too, I mean, that again, relates to surrendering ideas that we have of mythologies that we sort of blindly pledged, have pledged ourselves to. Again, whether it's personal, familial, you know, national, tribal, institutional, whatever, in surrendering these ideas. You know, there's the quote by Herman Hesse in the beginning of the thing that, you know, in the beginning was, you know, there was the myth. And we're, all of us begin our lives with a myth. And the idea that these myths make us weak, I mean, they're necessary and they're fascinating. I'm, I mean, I'm absolutely a true believer in a lot of ways. And I guess my writing will forever, you know, will be my attempt to reconcile the idea that I, that I am at my core, a true believer. I want to believe, I want to believe in the omnipotence and, you know, amazing, cool godliness of my father and the righteousness and the coolness of the, you know, the prowess of the Marine Corps in this country. But, you know, that's, that's not the case. You know, the reality is not that. And so I guess it's having a clear, you know, making sense of that. You know, I think Manuel Puig said that, you know, he writes so he can make, you know, he, he recreates reality in order to make better sense of it. That's what I'm trying to do and surrender these ideas that really have put me in bondage and to free, free my kids in a way and free myself. And um, so, yeah, the, the title Surrender comes from the story Surrender, but it relates to all the stories in general. Well, in your mention of Hess's quote at the beginning, you also ended with it, which I mean, not with that quote, but with another of his quotes, which speak exactly to your point right now, which is some of us think holding on makes makes us strong, but sometimes it's letting go. When did he sort of become your bookends? Uh, well, okay, this is, you know, towards the end of the process, because I would say that, again, I just sit down, gee, can I tell a story? Huh, this is interesting. You know, this makes me feel good. Yeah, I think I have some command. Oh, you know, sub- fast forward several years. Oh, this is about demythologizing, you know, a certain kind of manhood. What does it mean to be a man? You keep writing. And then, you know, you win this terrific award. Phil Cly, you know, selects your book and you're like, oh, holy shit. Like I have to somehow, you know, unify all this. It's kind of unified to, you know, in a very roundabout way. But then, you know, as a writer, again, focusing on making sure everything connects in a way. And then, you know, it's like, so how do I, in a poetic, in a very, you know, pithy way, kind of, again, provide this guide, as you call it, and wow, thank God for Herman Hesse that, you know, he, he had two great quotes and I, I just, just digging around in his works. And those two things just jumped out at me as a sort of a perfect beginning because the beginning one too has a, has a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a take from the Bible. And so much of these cultures, these subcultures that I'm writing about and demythologizing are, they're like almost like religious orders. I know that the Marine Corps certainly views itself as that you know a religion on the you know in the best possible light and a cult at its worst i mean i even had an experience i was out at 29 palms out in the desert you know here in southern california a friend of mine a naval academy classmate was turning he was having a change of command ceremony he was giving up a marine corps he was leaving a regiment he was turning it over to another colonel and we had had a party in his backyard on, you know, in the desert there on the base at 29 Palms. 
And my friend says, well, you know, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is going to be here today. And I mean, I almost turned into a puddle of jelly at that point because the Commandant of the Marine Corps is like the Pope of the Marines. And, you know, though I've been out of the Marine Corps for a very long time, I am still, you know, an adherent, an apostle, whatever you want to call it. And I said, you know, you have to introduce me because, you know, again, a Catholic would have to be introduced to the Pope if he was going to be at a barbecue in the desert in Southern California. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I'd had three or four beers on board at that point, maybe getting up a little, little courage. And my friend uh, introduces me to the commandant and my jaw was a little unhinged at that point. And so I felt no problems in saying, you know, sir, of course I called him, sir, even though I'm well out of the Marine Corps, I said, this is like, this is like meeting, you know, the Pope. And he just looks at me, doesn't miss a beat. He goes, absolutely. He goes, I am the Pope. He goes, I speak to God every day. And by God, he meant Chesty Puller, who we all know in the Marine Corps. Chesty Puller was like the ultimate Marine. And he's been dead for going on 60 years. But the fact that the commandant of the Marine Corps didn't miss a beat, called him, said, yes, I am the Pope. And I speak to God every day chesty puller i mean i almost died because he again here's again here's the pope confirming all these like strange outsider thoughts that i've been having in my head for all these years and it was all true so yeah i don't know where i, yeah, how I talking about that but i mean that's the great thing i see we're getting ready to wrap up here but i mean i, I would say to writers too that that's the great joy of writing i think is being able to indulge these things that we're so passionate about or that we have curiosity about. It gives us license to just to do this deep dive into this stuff. And no matter how, quote, odd we think our thoughts are or the connections or maybe not hewing to, you know, the accepted, you know, philosophy or whatever, we can, we can connect the dots on our own and create our own worlds. And it's, man, it's intoxicating, I think. Well, and you have to do that. I mean, that's really what goes into, you know, creating your authentic voice. And it's whatever the twigs and leaves are that you drag into your nest that that bring everything to life. So yeah, that that totally makes sense. Yeah, We have to talk a little bit about your publication journey, because I know new writers are always interested in, you know, especially in today's day and age where it's so cutthroat and, and there are a lot of different paths to the cheese, yeah. but they're pretty narrow yeah. paths. And they're getting narrower too. Yeah. So talk a little about this. Once you had the collection done, you entered this into a contest at Syracuse? Yes. You know, here's the thing too. You always got to, like, again, this is probably something my father would say, maybe he did or not, but I mean, you always got to be shooting at the target and I have no problems doing that. We all need to do that. We all need to have the courage to take a shot at the target and not only just shoot at the target, but shoot at a bullseye. I would always be amazed when some of these some of these writing classes that I've taken, and you would meet these amazing writers, like you would listen to their work, and you'd be like, "Oh my God, I could never hope to be, you know, one iota as good as this writer." And then you would see them a couple of years later, and they don't submit. And I get that we all have different reasons for our writing, but to me, you constant you have to submit. You have to have the courage of just getting punched in the face, so to speak in making friends with that word no and rejection. And a component of that too is entering contests because 
you know, short of being published in the New Yorker or the Paris Review or something like that, you know, contests, I think, are a good way, like a game changer in a way. And I think as well, it's understanding which contests that you might have an advantage or a slight leg up on other people. And so me, with my background at the Naval Academy of Marine Corps, I remember just searching, you know, veterans, essentially veterans writing awards or veterans writing opportunities, because this is a niche that, you know, I know I'm a good writer and I have this niche that's going to separate a lot of people. And the Syracuse thing popped up and so did a couple others. I think Iowa has one. I've never had success with that. And I entered Syracuse's contest in 2019, which is the first year that they had it. Didn't hear a peep, which of course was crushing, but then just did it again. And, you know, lo and behold, you get a couple of emails that, hey, you're a finalist and hey, you won. Well, now, you know, you're this collection of short stories, which people said, ooh, yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, good luck getting those published. Um, they all have a really beautiful home, courtesy of the wonderful Syracuse University Press, who've been, man, they've been so fantastic. They really get it. And that's what I love. So, yeah, I mean, this this contest, the, the Veterans Writing Award, was, was it changed my life in a lot of ways. And the judges that they've had, that they've had the contest twice. Tobias Wolf was the first judge. I mean, you know, I'm not worthy. We're not worthy. My God. And Phil Cly, I heard that. I almost let my blood went cold. I was like, I almost can't handle this. Like, here's here's these two guys, you know what I mean, that I dream about, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> drinking beer with these guys and talking, talking writing. And you know, it, it worked out. So again, I think it's identifying where your advantage is. One, having the courage, so to speak, maybe that's an overblown word, but, you know, getting, except getting punched in the face and wasting some money, spending $10, $20 to enter a contest, if you're able to do that. A lot of them have waivers. Hey, I can't afford to, to pay this, but take the shot at the target. And then you got to get back up and take another shot when you get knocked down because you just never know and you can't quit. And then magical, you create your own magic in a way. And again, I'm a white, it's, it's, I have these things. I'm a middle, a, a very middle-aged white male. Seriously, who cares what I think? Really? We've had people who look and think, well, not think like me, but you know, people who look like me, man, they've had their say. And so it's, it is a challenge in, in as it should be, because there's so many voices out there that now it's, it's time to hear those stories. It's their time. Uh, again, I have to say too, I have this great uh, producing partner, Azadeh Navai. She was born in Tehran. She's 36. She's an amazingly talented filmmaker. Guess what? It's her time right now. Uh, I so believe in her and it's time for all the Azadehs out there to tell their stories. That doesn't mean middle-aged white males have to quit, but you just have to like, you know, put your thinking caps on and, you know, pull up your, your big boy pants and figure out how you're going to do it. It's never easy. This is not for the faint hearted, you know? And then in terms of marketing, because I know a lot of people are curious about that. If you go through a small press and I assume that you didn't have to find an agent because you won, you know, you won this contest and they published you, but nonetheless, so to do the marketing and whatnot for the book, I know you found Kim Dower, who's, you know, a great friend of our show. Love um, Kim Dower. Yeah, God. we all love Kim Dower. But yeah, talk a little bit about just the, we'll sign off in just a moment, but I'd also yeah. just love to, you know, the, the marketing side of this is a, a real thing for, for writers. Okay. This is, you know, maybe 
paradoxically to a lot of writers out there, this might be the most important part of our discussion today, because all the other stuff I think that, you know, maybe writers understand intuitively, they'll get to that, you know, they'll figure the things out. I can't underscore enough the need or the importance of having a talented public relations representative batting for you. And unfortunately for me, well, fortunately, whatever, life's a big, a tough learning curve. You know, in producing many worthy, terrific films, documentaries, you pour your heart and soul into these things, you sacrifice, you take seconds off your life. And then without public relations or some, you know, I'm, uh, you know, somebody to go to bat on your behalf, it just gets lost in the white noise. Yeah. And as long as it takes a collection of short stories or a novel to come out, again, in my case, seven years. I was, there's no way that I was going to let this thing disappear into the white noise. And so figured out who knew who, you know, what of my friends knew public, literary public relations people, because, you know, there's public relations people for film, literature, technology. So you need to find yourself a literary PR rep. And then, of course, all the good ones are booked. And, you know, they're booked for a long time. And maybe you've started this process nine months to the publication of your book. Well, you're out of luck in a lot of cases. People that you would, you know, cut your limbs off to be with, they might love you too, but there's nothing you can do about it. By some crazy stroke of the, you know, the universe, I found Kim Dower and man, I just fell in love immediately. And, you know, we connected and she had space for me. She's amazing. And I have to say, particularly if you're going to be with a university press, you know, that's been a learning process too. I mean, university presses, they're smart, they're passionate, they're committed, but they don't often have the budget or the bandwidth. You've got, you know, people who are doing maybe, you know, several jobs at one time and they're overextended. And so it's welcome and helpful, I think, to a writer to bring in, you know, a higher gun to help you know, your press, your university press in particular, get the word out. Because, you know, again, like with somebody like Kim, again, everybody loves her. So my marketing guru at Syracuse, Lisa Cuervas, who's fabulous, man, they just make an unbeatable team together. They work so well. And so it, that's terrific. And I think that you have to be, you have to kind of be your own PR person as well. Um, I'm kind of predisposed to that. And I know a lot of writers aren't, um, but you have to be tireless on your own behalf. And at the end of the day, you have to be the person that is be, you have to be your own evangelist and yeah. that will help your, you know, your, your PR people that you've got helping. And again, between Lisa Cuervas, myself and Kim Dower. Wow. That's a dream team. It is a dream team, but yeah. again, the, the the practicality of it is it's not cheap public good public relations representation is not cheap so my philosophy is i didn't start writing to get rich yes i like to travel to italy like anybody i like to drink nice beer i like to pay the mortgage or whatever and put gas in my car but i don't write to make money and I realize that I'm in kind of a privileged position for that you know my va check for my disability goes a long way and I'm disciplined. Writers have to be disciplined. You can't buy into like, ooh, maybe we should, you know, get a bigger TV or something. Like maybe the old one is fine. And that's how you're able to do this. So again, for me, spending the money on good PR on Kim Dower with 
absolutely a great investment. And the choice of that word investment is very intentional because I'm investing in my book. I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in my career and I'm investing in, you know, getting the message or what's the book about thing out to the world. And that's what makes me a quote, rich man. So these are some hard questions that writers have to ask themselves. I love that. And I love the word discipline, not only financially disciplined, but, you know, obviously time disciplined with your own work and, and putting it as a priority. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many, I mean, society is designed today in October in 2022 is to sap you know, your time insanity away from you. I mean, social media is a great, you know, suck of time. As we all know, it's nothing new. Uh, it's a tool though, you know, and if we can keep it, we're disciplined to use it as a tool and not get sucked in too much to looking at somebody's food, you know, pictures of their breakfast burrito, you know, you can, it can be a great tool, but it can also too kill all of your writing time or your reading time too, because that's essential as well. Part of the discipline. You know, you got to read and you got to challenge yourself. Well, tell us how we follow you so that we can follow your journey, because the the book just came out. Yes. Um, and I assume that you're going to do some tours and you live in Southern California. So if locals that are local to me have a have a shot at getting to you, we'd love to we'd love to see you talk about it. Oh, my God. Yes. I promise you a good time. I love to read. And again, all that good Susan Peretz, you know, actors training and stuff to be able to it's another form of you know, it's another aspect to it. So it's a performance. Yeah. Oh, actually, I have to say, this is, I know we're a little bit over here. So last Friday, so a friend's mom, uh, who's 94, her and her husband, they created Dynasty. You know, you want to talk about a cultural touchstone from the, the TV show that Dynasty? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, to people who are of a certain age, I mean, you couldn't escape the <laughs> 1980s without you know, without being some sucked into that somehow. Anyway, I had had a meeting with her mom, Esther, who's wonderful. I God, I love Esther. Like, let's say 10, 15 years ago about, oh God, what should I do? Um, and her mom, basically, who's just got this amazing, like razor sharp mind was like, you need to lean into this Marine Corps thing. I know you are shying away from lean into it. Tell these stories. So I realized probably three weeks ago or so that she's the one that initially planted the seed for this idea like 15 years ago. And I mentioned this to my friend, Flory. And, you know, we talked about her getting the book or whatever. And she said, well, my mom is like, you know, she's, her sight isn't so great anymore. And then this light bulb went off over my head and I was like, well, I would love to come read to your mom. So last Friday we went over to their house and we sat around the kitchen table and drank coffee and ate pastry. And I read um, The Male Thief, one of the stories in the book to her. And it was fantastic. And she was asking about when the, you know, the, uh, the audio book was going to come out. And I was like, geez, I have no idea. It's going to be a long time. And I was just like, why don't I just come back and read the entire book to you? And it has been, again, that's why I wrote the book for this connection. And I, I'm going back there tomorrow and I can't wait to read her another two, three stories. So the point of all that is I'm going to be reading in LA at Book Soup, the fabulous bookstore on Sunset uh, in West Hollywood, I believe on Thursday, November 3rd at seven o'clock. And it's going to be terrific. There's going to be tons of smart, interesting LA characters there. The next day I go to Elliott Bay Books in Seattle. Uh, then I go to Syracuse on the following Monday, Ithaca, New York, uh, Hamden, Connecticut for Quinnipiac University. 
And then after that, I'm doing a reading on the Marine Corps birthday, Friday, November 10th at the 11th Street Bar in the East Village in Manhattan. Then on to Philadelphia, uh, where I read at Head House Books on Tuesday, November 15th. And then after that, uh, I go to Greenville, South Carolina to read at the fabulous M. Judson Books in Greenville. And then finally at uh, Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City, Utah on the 19th, Saturday the 19th. Um, so it, that's an in-person thing. And if you heard it on this podcast, please come say hello and I'll hug you. So I love that there's a legitimate book tour. Like you just don't hear of that many anymore unless they're the, the real big guys, you know, that you have to. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of that. That's me. You know what I mean? I mean, it's me and it's Kim, you know, Kim was like, Ooh, do you want, you know, like I can get you book soup. I'm like, like, again, are you kidding me? It's like Tobias Wolf and Phil Clyde. It's like, I'm doing a reading at book soup insanity or like I lived in Seattle, Elliott Bay books. Are you kidding me? Like that's, these are like temples. So, and I just hustled up a bunch of them myself. Um, I just, you know, again, you have to be your own evangelist. And I just constructed, I write a good email and send them off. Here's why you, you know, you might be interested. And again, lots, lots of people didn't even respond, um, which is fine. But then there's, you know, the few that are like, oh, hell yeah. Like we were excited. We want you to come. Can you come to Greenville, South Carolina and Syracuse? Again, I, I was happy to pay for this all myself. You know, I fly in spirit air. I'll sit in the, you know, the overhead bin wearing three sets of clothes. You know, that's fine. As long as I get there, that's the important part. And Syracuse is so generous and amazing. They're like, oh, hell yeah, we'll pay for this. You know, again, it's that Marine Corps mentality. We always call it like a mentality of poverty. We pride ourselves on like doing twice as much with, you know, half the amount. And this again, extends goes well into promoting books. So like I was fired up to do this book tour. So yes, I know it's it's crazy, but who am I? I'm just a nobody, but I've got like this kind of like this book tour in November and it's going to be amazing. You know, again, you, know, you have to generate people to come to these things. So it's figuring out your leverage point again, you know, obvious things, you know, Naval Academy Alumni Association, I was, you know, West Point too. Like, why wouldn't they want to come see a guy from the Naval Academy? And then you just kind of go down these rabbit holes of where you might have support. And you'd be surprised people coming at, you know, hey, I let, you know, the, the veterans affairs person from, you know, the county now, and these people are coming and like, I want to break these places with attendance. I want people to be looking through the windows at me reading short stories. <laughs> I love it. Well, speaking of the dreaded social media, Yes. Can we follow you on social media? Can you we- ab- absolutely <laughs> can. Uh, Instagram, it's uh, at B-O-H-A-R-E-1-3-X, my, my lucky number and my favorite oh. letter. So Bohair13X. The same thing for Twitter, at Bohair13X. I have a website, brianohair.com. I'm on Facebook. But, you know, it's Brian O'Hare, but it's I'm less of a Facebook person because it's a you know, it's a very toxic environment. But if you want to talk to other 50 year olds, it's a good place to do it. True. I mean, it's just again, it's a tool. But yes, I'm on Facebook as well. But I think the the things that get all my love are Instagram and Twitter. I still haven't figured out Twitter totally. Though. I'm a little afraid of it, but it's a lot. It yeah, is a lot. Things. Yeah. Well, Brian O'Hare, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, for having me and allowing me to go on a caffeine-fueled rant for you about my book. I, it was so enjoyable. All right, thank you so much. 
That was Brian O'Hare. The book is Surrender. It is out and available now, published by Syracuse University Press. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, and Spotify. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. 